parents truly understood how much it can mess up and contaminate our children's natural wiring, they will stop it. But I think it's because parents don't understand. Please welcome Dr. Shafali. The legendary, the astounding Dr. Shafali is a clinical psychologist and acclaimed author on the topic of parenting who's not only on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list, but Oprah said, brace yourself. In all my 25 years of the Oprah show, I've never heard such revolutionary and spot on advice through a method called conscious parenting. A new way of looking at parenting that will change your child's life. Every action is a thought process. Is that what conscious parenting is? It's deeper than that. It's about... When you say no, when you say yes, where spoiledness comes in, I'm honestly confused. I always say find the yes and then we can come up with the no's. When emotions are not processed, then they get suppressed and that's when you get anger, rage, drug issues, substance abuse, because you're stuffing the feelings down and where do those feelings go? Do you feel with the age of internet, we are getting better and wiser? What is the future? If I had to choose, I would say it's more disastrous now than ever before because... Gladiators, welcome back. Today I have an unbelievable influencer, expert uh, in conscious parenting, somebody that my... At right now, my wife hates me because she never had a chance to interview this lady who's an absolute genius. I'd like to welcome Dr. Shafali to the arena. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Doctor. Very briefly, uh, you're a clinical psychologist, correct? Yes. So I have a, a PhD in clinical psychology, uh, but I'm really a lifetime seeker of, you know, integrating wisdom from the East, really, Eastern spirituality and uh, really integrating the principles of mindfulness and um, helping people heal. So I use Eastern practices uh, integrated with my clinical training in Western psychology. And I have a practice where I help people uh, daily, but I also have written six books um, three of which are New York Times bestsellers. I've also done uh, a lot of speaking around the world. Uh, and I also have a coaching institute where I train coaches globally to become ambassadors of conscious parenting and mindful living. I train them uh, and I have a lot of coaches from where you are in Dubai. And then they go out and they do this as a career. So my mission really is not only to help heal one person at a time, but also give this training to others so that they can take it forward and do this amazing work because it's so rewarding when you can help families to heal. I mean, I, I can't think of something more rewarding than that. Little bit. We're just going to touch base, doctor, because not many doctors are business owners. Okay. So lots of people are listening. They got qualifications. There are lots of coaches out there who are not making money. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey when you became a doctor, then you started to run a very successful business, and then so your tentacles reach out all over the world right now. Just share that journey with us and maybe some trials and tribulations you've had, please. Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. Many people in my field don't know how to translate it to successful businesses and entrepreneurship. 
and and you know better than anyone not everyone can be an entrepreneur because to be an entrepreneur just on its own requires tremendous grit resilience and risk taking so we all want to quote unquote make money but i always tell people yeah go ahead that comes with tremendous tolerance for risk so i don't recommend entrepreneurship for everybody it really has to match the personality of the person and many people do better in a very contained structured predictable environment a 9 to 5 so to speak so first i i tell people is really check in with yourself and maybe talk to a coach or talk to a successful entrepreneur to find out if you can handle the volatility of that venture you know not everyone can do this so having said that um you know the reason i think i've been quote unquote successful is because number one i'm not afraid of making money right many women are afraid because of their worth and they don't feel like they can claim uh quote unquote uh, uh, financial rewards because of lack of worth i remember in my 20s i was plagued with lack of worth also because i'm uh you know someone who's giving a service out of the heart and i'm a woman and i'm a wisdom teacher it felt very uh antithetic antithetical to then ask for money right you you on one hand are a philanthropist as uh, a, a giver a, a a vessel of truth and beauty and wisdom how can you then ask for money right so first i had to really go through that process and realize that i can still give a service of beauty and ask for a price so that took a little bit of adjusting the next thing was my lack of worth in my entire 20s i felt so afraid to even ask for i remember my first uh, fee that i asked for was $70 and i was so scared to even ask for 70 because i didn't think i was good enough and i had imposter syndrome so it took me a decade to get out of that i remember going from $75 to $90 to 100 i was so afraid to incrementally go up and then i realized it was because i didn't see value in my service and as i evolved and became more grounded in my purpose and my worth i began to see value in my function i'm providing a very essential function and of course you don't want to be greedy or corrupt in any way but it's okay it's okay to ask for it and i think women and women in service have a very hard time with this and i i really help people uh, through my coaching institute and in my daily practice to help women arrive at a place of a fair market value for their services something that men would be able to do like this we women typically take a long time because of our indoctrination that we should be of service we should be charitable uh, so we have a hard time balancing the masculine and feminine I totally agree with you. The funny thing is out of my pupils and my followers majority are women. Because I I know you talk about ego a lot, okay? We're going to we're going to cross that. But what I find with women they have less of an ego. They're more open to change, listening, learning, 
Um, because I guess like minorities go, because I'm not white in a white man's world, we just have to try a little harder, don't we? Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, you know, it, it isn't ego in the way males would manifest ego, which is just blatant domination. <laughs> but it is ego of a different kind. It's reverse ego, but it's still ego, meaning we are so attached to being the good ones. We're so attached to being, uh, you know, pious and uh, caring that then that seems contrasting to then asking Charging. for money. Yes. But you are right in one aspect that women are the seekers. And that's why you have more of a female audience. And so do I, because we females, because we are more in touch, I think, with our feelings, we are more open to learning. And that is such an amazing thing indeed. Like I always tell my female audiences, I just spoke in front of 750 females uh, in Toronto recently, that we are the vanguards of a new consciousness. And we are the ones who are going to break out of the mold and do things in a new way. And we're going to bring our male brothers and partners along on the journey. Um, and, you know, it's not because males and uh, are, are just, you know, brutes. It's because they have been conditioned to be the providers. So they are just in the doing mode and we are able to be access more of the feeling and the being mode. And we are with the children. We are giving birth for those of us who can. So we are more in touch with life, so to speak. And I think that's why you see more female seekers than male seekers. And it's a real pleasure and honor working with them. It really, really is. Now, we touched the birth. You, you, you have a family, doctor. You have a family yes. of your own. So how do you balance it all? Well, I don't believe in balance <laughs> because there is really no such thing. You have to make a priority and, and go for it. So my first 10 years of being a mother, that was my priority. Everything else happened when my daughter was asleep or didn't need me. I didn't travel the world like I do now. I wasn't so out there like I am now. I was exhausted. I was tired. I was cranky. I didn't go to the gym. I was 10 pounds heavier. And I allowed that. I honored that part of my life. Yes. Did I complain about it a little bit? Yes. But I also used to parent myself and tell myself, being a mother is no joke. And you chose this. So now you can't bemoan it. And if you put pressure on yourself to now be super skinny and super fit and be super successful, you, you will fail at mothering. And I had to really come to a reckoning. What is my priority? And it doesn't have to be for everybody, but for mothers, kind, that has to kind of take the front stage and for fathers, maybe too, as well. I'm just talking from my experience and there is nothing like a mother, you know, every father can try his best, but it is the mother's maternal giving that has a very unique place in the child's life. And I think we females need to embrace that. And it's okay to not be everything. You know, there's a modern mantra that I see a lot of millennial females embody, which is you can do it all. And I don't believe in that. I don't think we can do it all. I don't think we should do it all. I think we're going to exhaust ourselves trying to prove ourselves in a male world. Why? 
Like I find nothing interesting about the male world. Why would I want to be part of it? And I think we females are losing out because we think that to be superior means to have one foot in the female world and the maternal world and then one foot in the male world. And, and, and I know I'm sounding, uh, like a bit com- compartmentalized. I don't mean to, but I see many females struggling with quote unquote, just being a mom. And I, I feel bad for them because being a mom is amazing. So I did that for 10 years. And then only as my daughter began evolving into her own autonomy, did I then begin to leave her more and more. And and that gave me satisfaction. Listen, it won't give everybody satisfaction, but I don't believe in balance. I don't believe in doing it all. So right now my daughter's 21. So again, I'm not doing it all. I'm just doing my my passion now because I'm I'm kind of done with mothering. Uh, and that's how I like to live my life. I don't want to put pressure on myself. I don't believe I need to be a super achiever in every aspect. I'm not trying to get a million followers. I really don't care about any of this stuff. I'm here to so, make a difference, yes, but but I'm here to make a difference first in my own life. <laughs> beautiful. Thank you. I've got a million questions to ask you. Um, as you were parenting your daughter in a young age were you work in progress were you constantly looking in the mirror adjusting taking notes how, how was that or were you just relaxed you went along with it because most no parents... no no i i have been i have been a relentless seeker of growth and there was nothing complacent about me however i was a hot mess you know when you're a parent for the first time you know you literally make mistakes every single day. I was just thinking to myself the other day, wow, if I had a child for the first time at this age, I would kill it. But I didn't know any better at at 30 years old, right? We don't know anything at 30. Um, so I, I was a hot mess, but I was a seeker. And that's why I began writing books on conscious parenting because that came from my own seeking. Uh-huh. So it you came writing- from my own desire when to you, grow. Uh-huh. So you were writing when your daughter was a child, a baby. You, yes, uh-huh. yes, 100%. I began writing because writing is my medium of expression. So it it was therapeutic for me. But I was always processing, you know, all my ego and watching myself be a disaster. And I then alchemized it like you have done with your life. I then alchemized it into power and service. When you say you keep saying you, you were making a mess, maybe you weren't. I mean, uh, probably if you speak to your daughter. Do you speak to your daughter now about then and what you say, Mom, you were amazing. You're just too hard on yourself. Because I know a lot of parents, because I think as we got more awareness, we're too hard on ourselves to be perfect. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yep, it's, it's good you said that. When I say I was a mess, I don't really say that with any self-deprecation. I say that just as uh, with humor and compassion. Uh, yes, we, I think we've all done an amazing job, but we've also messed up, but that mess up is inevitable. It's natural. It's part of the journey. And as long as we can grow from it, this parenting process can become our greatest awakeners. So when I say mess, yes, you're right. I, it, it may sound like I'm being critical and I don't or want Or too hard that. on yourself. Uh, yeah. When I say mess for me, it's just embracing my imperfections. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Amazing. Do you speak to your daughter now about her childhood? Do you get feedback from her? Yes, yes. According to her, I have tormented her and traumatized her. <laughs> <laughs> and she keeps reminding but she you. Can tell me, she can tell me that. You know, it's so funny when you talk to your children what they remember. Yes. And she'll remember these one or two inci- instances that she keeps talking about how I traumatized her because I made her go for basketball one day and she didn't want to go. And one time I put her in a horse riding competition. Oh, and one time I was so evil, I sent her for a meditation class and how that devastated her. You know, you know how our children are. But yeah, for the most part, she also will uh, will concede that it was a very easy childhood because from a young age, I consciously chose to not punish her. So she got away with murder, you know, and yeah. she is aware of that because she would tell me, wow, you don't ground blessed. me, you don't punish me, you don't take things away. Uh, and all my other friends' parents do that. So from a young age, I found another way to quote unquote discipline her. And of course, she appreciates that. Wow, beautiful. Um, okay, talk about my childhood. I lost my father when I was three and a half. And... Um, in Iran, I'm Iranian born, and uh, they didn't tell me for about a year. And when I found out is, uh, I actually turned up at his anniversary of his death on his grave. So I said, who's this guy? He said, that's your father. And that's how I found out. And I really, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I had so much anger within me. And maybe I still have, I'm in my fifties now. Now, would you suggest that people should t- share tough things with their children, even at a, such a young age? Because I think they should have told me. Because I feel I could have handled it better than the way I found out. So one of the things I say is that share things with your children because they have the capacity to understand. That's my opinion. And I would like to hear your opinion, Doctor. Yeah, so there are two layers to this. If, if the information is happening globally, like a war or, uh, you know, a plague, then children don't need to know if it's not directly impacting them. If it is impacting them, we need to titrate how and wh- how we tell them. So if somebody had told you at the age of three, your dad is dead, he was murdered or killed or whatever, he had a heart attack, kalas, finished, done, then it's going to be too traumatic, right? So you want to titrate it according to the child's developmental level. However, you are right. In bits and pieces, children should know what is impacting them directly, but in a language that they can understand in little bite-sized pieces, because when we are able to process information with the caregiver, that is way better than not being able to process the information. So little bits and pieces, a little bit of tears, a little bit of anger, as long as it can come out in a safe way, uh, actually over time, that's better. You know, parents want to protect children. So they're coming from a good intention, but sometimes they overprotect. And in that process, don't allow for the valuable part of processing information together. You see, what's important for the child is not so much the content or the data, but the ability to process it. 
and you never got a chance to process it and your caregivers were not emotionally intelligent to allow you to express. So for example, when parents come to me and tell me that my teenager is so angry with me and they're yelling at me all the time, I always tell parents, you know, it's okay for them to dump on you because that's their way of processing their own existential crisis. So yes, it's hard for the parent to receive that, but you know, every time my daughter's angry, I always think to myself, better she's showing me she's angry, better she's dumping it on me in this house because we can process it and she's safe. And I think when emotions are not processed, then they get suppressed. And that's when you get anger, rage, drug issues, substance abuse, bulimia, because you're stuffing the feelings down. And where do those feelings go? So obviously people then act out. Amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, also, I have, thank goodness, I have four beautiful children. And one thing I, I, I believe, again, I'm open to being corrected, is that I give them so much love, so much love, that they don't go seeking it anywhere else. I think one of the issues, again, it's my opinion, I could be wrong, doctor, is that a lot of people in relationships are looking to fill their cups from the other party. And I think if I can, you can have children that give him so much love that the cups are full all the time, they don't seek happiness somewhere else. What's your opinion? Because some people say, yes. well, you give too much love, they're gonna be soft. But my kids aren't soft, my two older ones are not 28 and 29. They're not soft, but they're happy in their own space. What's, what's yes, your thoughts I, on that? I think there's, there's, there's no amount of love that you can give that is enough. You can keep giving love for the rest of your life. You know, I make it a point, my daughter's 21 and she thinks I'm too, you know, uh, gushy and mushy. But ev I, I would say almost every single day she will get a paragraph from me about how I'm in love with her. I leave love notes for her everywhere in the house. Because yes, we want them to know that this one connection is the strongest bond so that they know very clearly that if every other relationship in their life falls apart, it's okay. They can come home. They have this one person that has their back and will do anything for them. Wow, what an amazing experience, right? You may not have grown up with that, but the fact that you're giving it to your children is going to hold them through life storms and really be there in their subconscious, even though they may not know it, you are filling their love bank every day and it definitely matters. Whether they show appreciation for it or not, whether they you know, read it or not, it, it's registering at a subconscious level. Did you have love in your life when you were growing up, doctor? Because I didn't, and I always wanted to be the parent I, I didn't have. So I always want to be a great father, always a great father. Do you mind if I share, share with me if you had it? Did you have awareness? What made you give so much love to your yeah, daughter? Yeah, I, 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 I really am one of the rare people, I think, uh, that had the most amazing parents. Uh, and they're still alive. And I tell my mom every day that I am nowhere near her level. Uh, she, my mother is just unbelievable. My father's unbelievable. I'm like, I hit the lotto, but I will tell you, 
the way it influenced me at a young age, because I was so aware that I was so bloody lucky that from a young age that motivated me to give back. I always felt that I had too much, uh, a little guilty about that. And I made up my mind as a young child by the age of nine or 10 that I must give back. And I've been giving back since then. But I feel like I, for, for many years, I felt a compulsion and now I don't feel that kind of compulsion out mm. of guilt. Now I do it out of pleasure and abundance, yes. but I used to do it out of, oh my God, how did I get so lucky? You know, and in India, growing up in India, watching poverty, watching my friends being beaten up by strict parents, I didn't have any of that treatment. I, I felt like I, I needed to give back, but it was out of guilt. And now, you know, I'm 51 now. Now, in my last decade or so, I've learned to give back out of joy, out of abundance. Uh, but see how you and I are motivated by the same thing, but in a different way. Absolutely. My next question was, how do you not take it for granted? And you answered because you could look at your neighbors, you could look at your friends, and they didn't have that love. So you couldn't take it for granted. You appreciated everything you got. Yes. At, and not every child age. will do that. Some children are more sensitive. And uh, if you have a sensitive child, that child will take it in. And it's okay if your child is not sensitive and doesn't want to give back. Uh, you know, sometimes we parents give so much love and we're like, where is all the love going? They're just taking it all for themselves. It's okay. We're not giving love to our children so that they then give it to someone else. We're giving love to our children because that's what we want to do. And th that's where the buck stops. If they choose to give it forward, great. If they choose to not like it, that's their choice. We give love not to make them a superstar or a super athlete or uh, make them a puppet. We give them love because that's what we have in our hearts. Yes, unconditionally, with zero expectations. Doctor, I know you're yes. short of time and you got... Uh, interviews soon. So going to my next questions, um, physically, we can see what people inherit, you know, your children inherit. I have four beautiful children. I see the beauty spot of my mom. I see certain you know, chin of my dad and so forth. And then you can have four children, same parents, but totally different personalities. Is character and personality in the DNA, just like beauty spots are or or is it, are they born in a certain way? Is it their experiences makes the children behave differently in the same family? Yes. Yeah, so what I teach in conscious parenting is that children are born a certain way. And I call it their essence. And it's their temperament. It's their, it's in the DNA. And you know, with four children, one to the next, so different. Exactly. And each child will interact with the parent in a very different way to give a different result. So it's like dealing with, you know, 17 different variables at any point in time. So there is a unique essence. And as parents, I believe it's our mandate to preserve that essence as much as possible. And, and it really, I learned this and it's the fundamental of conscious parenting, what I teach. I learned this because in the beginning of my daughter's life, her essence didn't work with my fantasy and I wanted her to be different. And that's where I saw my ego come because from a young age, I was trying to mold her 
into what I wanted her to be. And that's where I saw my big schism between my expectations and her essence, the reality. And I realized I can either kill her spirit by imposing my expectations, or I can let go of my expectations and allow her spirit to rise. And that fundamental dilemma was my entryway into conscious parenting. That's how I realized conscious parenting because I was not okay with my daughter's essence. And the reason I wasn't okay with my daughter's essence is because I was coming from lack and scarcity. So in my head, she had to look a certain way and be a certain way. Otherwise, she was bad because that's how I was with myself. And you portrayed it Because I did her. not unconditionally. Yes. Wow. Right. And there I projected my lack onto her. The moment I began to work on my own unconditional acceptance of myself, I began to accept her. So that was how I actually started conscious parenting because I saw the pollution of my own ego and expectations onto her essence. Wow. Conscious parenting. Um, if somebody told me that, I think you've got to be conscious. I I'm going to be wrong here and you I want you to correct me. It's like every action is you got to think about it it's a thought process is that what conscious parenting is yes so conscious parenting is not just about obsessing about every thought and feeling and behavior it's deeper than that it's about understanding that your childhood conditioning is going to show up in your parenting more than anything else and it's not the child that you have to raise It's your inner child that you have to raise, the wounds from your childhood. Because many times, if not all times, our children are okay. It's us who are bringing the baggage from our childhood and we are contaminating the connection. And that's why children act out. And that's why children have issues with us because we are actually blinded by our own conditioning that we are unconscious to. So conscious parenting is all about raising ourselves. You know, and I've written five parenting books. Um, yes, five parenting books. So people can can read that uh, and learn my method wow. for changing their connection with their children. Wow, that's incredible. So one of the things that when I was, I, I was having a conversation with my 29-year-old son. We were in, um, where were we? We were in Portugal having breakfast at a hotel. And he came up with an idea, a business idea. And immediately, I knew it wasn't going to work, okay? So what I did was, I very quickly quashed the idea, but I was inside very proud that he was coming up with an idea. But the more I spoke, the more I felt the pain I was inflicting on him by quashing his idea. And I just wanted to stop, but I couldn't, doctor, right? And I was like, And then I meditated on it. The very next day, I sat down with him. I held his hand and I cried. And I said, you know, son, I'm never going to clip your wings. I want to unclip your wings. I want you to fly. But I'm just so driven by fear that you might have the same pain as I did when I burned myself. I threw a lot of money. I, I hurt myself health-wise. And that's why I didn't mean to quash your Your, you know, I didn't want to clip your wings. I didn't want to quash your enthusiasm. I'm very proud of you. And he cried, I cried. But then I felt like, how can a parent, because I felt I was, I was quashing him because I feared him going through the same pain as I did. Am I making sense?
Oh my God, that is so profound that you arrived at that by yourself and repaired it with your child. How amazing of Actually, you to do that. Actually, I was on magic but mushrooms. I was, I was on mushrooms the next day. <laughs> it, was a, it was a mushrooms trip in Portugal. So, so we had no, some you, you did amazing mushrooms or not. We had some it's, cactus um, plants and then it, it was it just got me mm-hmm. thinking deep. Because you realize that you were being driven by fear and you were projecting your fear onto your child because there's no way to know whether something is going to work in the future or not. There's absolutely no way to know that. So uh, we all we know is the present moment. And if the child, of course, developmentally appropriate, If the child wants to try something, we need to allow them. I always say, find the yes. There's some part of what your son said that you could have said yes to. First, find the yes, and then we can come up with the no's. And, you know, if, for example, if your child says, mommy, I want to go to the moon, and your child is four years old, are you going to tell your child, well, that's so ridiculous, that's not rational, that's so stupid? Or are you going to say, Oh my God, I want to go to the moon too. What do you think the moon looks like? You see, there's such a beautiful, safe way to join your children in the yes, instead of immediately coming at them like this. And then they will find out themselves that they can't go to the moon. It's okay. Don't worry. They will find out themselves. But you were so afraid for your son to experience that pain of finding out himself that you wanted to bypass that process for him. And in doing that, you will actually rob your child of very valuable lessons that he needs to learn. You know, I always tell parents uh, who come to me saying, oh, I don't like my child's girlfriend or I don't like my child's partner. I can't believe they're getting married to this person. I always say to them that your resistance will create greater persistence. Let your child find out on their own. You know, you can try to tell them in a gentle way, but if they feel that you are opposing them, you actually make their desire stronger or you crush them. So there's an art to doing this, but the goal is to find a way to first connect and join and then come up with the resistance. Wow, I love that. Thank you for that. Thank you. Do you feel parenting differs from East to West? Well, now the whole world is kind of the West, right? (laughs) It's kind of taken over. But yes, there are differences between East and West, I think still, uh, you know, for one Eastern, uh, you know, and I'm, I, I don't want to speak for every country in the East, but for the most part, I think we are more communal. Uh, we live together more. We tolerate our relatives more. We, we stay with the annoying grandma, even though she's driving us crazy. We don't just put her in a nursing home. Uh, we deal with people's personalities, even if they're completely eccentric. And in the West, I think it's more nuclear, more individualistic. You know, if somebody drives you crazy, you discard them. Uh, there's a lot of discarding here of people and relationships that you just don't see in the East. In the East, some, you know, at least in India, you know, it's understood that your relatives are going to annoy the hell out of you, but you just have to just deal put with, up them, with you it, know. Yes. So now... Sometimes the East can be too extreme and have no boundaries, right? And people are invading each other's boundaries. And the West can be too extreme too and too individualistic. So we want to find a lovely balance between the two if it's possible. Thank you. Um, Lots of children 
I guess, actually both, because in the West, there's, there's a high divorce rate. In the East, there's crossing of boundaries. So do you think, like, for instance, if there's abuse in a, in a, in a family, the child witnesses it, do you think, what do you think they should do? Should they, because sometimes the parents stay in their relationship for the sake of being in the child's life? Or some people say, hang on a second, you're giving a good example, leave. So, I yeah, I think if it's if if it's physical abuse, if it's very high emotional abuse that is not changing fast, I think it's good to separate the children from that because children do feel traumatized and helpless, and it's not fair. Uh, so I do advocate to for the person who's being abused to take the children and leave if they can. But many times women cannot leave. Exactly. Uh, and women are stuck because they're not earning money. Um, so it's very hard. Uh, you know, I, that's why I've come to realize that who you choose to be the parent of your child is one of the most important decisions you will make in your life. Yes. And don't fear being on your own. Sometimes you can be a better parent yes, on I mean, your own than in a Oh, you will absolutely be better off without mm. the abuse. The problem is many women, especially, cannot financially sustain themselves. Yes. So I always tell women, you know, it's okay, you know, try to find relatives that you can count on, be vulnerable, ask for help, but don't stay in an abusive situation because it will kill you and then you are no good for your child. And do you find that the child becomes a victim or it can go both ways? The child can become an abuser? Well, or... well most, yeah. right, most perpetrators are victims at some point in their lives. Okay. So whether the victim stays a victim or becomes a perpetrator is just a matter of one child to another. But regardless, if one is a victim and stays a victim, you are a perpetrator to yourself. And if you are a victim and become a perpetrator to others, you've just translated that. So regardless, victimhood and perpetration go together. It's like one thing. Until, until, until you heal. Incredible. Um, how do I know nowadays it's a lot easier to heal because you got information at the press of a button. Yes, you can get information from everybody who process things or experience things as you have or we have. And then before it wasn't available. I'm, I think we similar ages, although I'm older than you, but there was no internet. So how do we expect people like older than us to become you know, I, I speak to a lot of people and say, right, the abuse is going to end here. This is this is the generation. It's going to end. It's not going to continue anymore. Do you feel with the age of internet, we are getting better and wiser? Or do you, how do you feel? People can, can, can get in touch with people like you more. Where is the future? Oh, there, there are many questions there. So <laughs> on one level, it's getting better. And on another level, it is becoming disastrous. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I, I don't have optimism or pessimism really for the future, but if I had to choose, I would say it's more disastrous now than ever before because we are becoming more distracted, unable to be without the phone, unable to be in connection. We more now than ever are unable to be without this constant barrage of data and information and advice and stimulation. 
And I think we're actually becoming more disconnected than ever. While we have a lot of data and information on our fingertips, it doesn't matter because we're not able to be with ourselves and be okay with ourselves. We're constantly comparing each other. We're constantly competing and we're, we're leaving the most essential quality of being a human, which is to have the capacity to be with oneself, to be with our imagination, to be creative, to be in solitude. So I think the trend is, is quite alarming. And we're seeing that in our children today. Children are more anxious today than ever. So there's something that is disconnected here. And I truly believe that it's this constant influx of stimulation that is detrimental to us. Thank you. I was uh, in a restaurant a couple of days ago and there was, a, I think, not even one-year-old child with the parents, young parents, and they were having a conversation. They had an iPad in front of this baby. And personally, I thought, no, not at one year, one year of age. No, don't start doing this. And the child was just glued to the iPad. And I wondered, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe we can't stop technology. Yes. In our household, when we're eating dinner, my wife says, do not have the iPad and do not have the phones on. Let's connect. And she's faced with resistance, sometimes from me, to be honest with you. Um, so what does young parents do? Because sometimes they just want to eat. They want to have dialogue. So they put the iPad on as a distraction to the child. What, what's your advice, doctor? I think I know yeah, what's it's coming. Really hard. I think I know what's coming. It's now. really hard, but I think... I think if the parent realizes how toxic it is, they will not do it anymore. Um, you know, when we were raising our children uh, 20 years ago, it was so different. And all we had was the TV and we had a few shows and that was bad enough. But now we have constant streaming and it's really toxic to get our children addicted. So I think if parents truly understood how, how much it can mess up and contaminate our children's natural wiring, they will stop it. But I think it's because parents don't understand. You know, it's like crack cocaine, constant streaming, and you then don't know how to be present with yourself and how to be connected in nature and how to be okay with being quiet. The argument is, is that technology is the way forward. So how do you, again, I know you don't like the word balance. How do you have that technology, yet you have your moment, you have your earth time, you have your quiet time. How, do, how does a parent practically yeah, do it? Yeah, what do you I, think, I think, again, you need to realize that technology is not the way forward. I think technology is the way backward and downward now. It's gotten so extreme that now it's going to, from in my opinion, destroy culture and destroy society. Um, it's gone way past. Again, it's too extreme now. And so once you realize that, then you have an aversion to it. Uh, you don't get on the streaming services. You don't subscribe to the channels. Once you realize that it's all nonsense anyway, and it's more noise, then you can create discipline in your life. But again, you have to see the value of doing other things. And that's why I tell parents, when your children see the value of connecting with you and playing with you and you make you show up, that's what they want then they will want you more than they want their video games. But if you've not been present, 
it's quite likely that wow. they will go that go the other way. However, I will say to parents that I feel for you because all the other kids are with on their devices. So it's really hard to be the only one who doesn't allow that. Amazing. Doctor, uh, we got four minutes because I promised you 55 minutes, but I lost a couple of minutes connection there. So you owe me two, three minutes. Um, one of the things I'm conscious of, my, I have four kids, two from a previous wife, two from uh, my second marriage. And the first two, I was very young, 26, 27, when I had my children. And I was grafting. So I wasn't there a lot of times. And they saw that graft. They saw me work hard. So they have an appreciation. Also, they saw me lose everything. Uh, you know, I lost a fortune and they saw the downside, the pain. With my second two, I, I, I have wealth. And I'm very conscious of not uh, getting them to believe in abundance, yet appreciate everything. This, the first two experienced it, so they really appreciate everything. My second two, they got Apple Pay, one's nine, one's 15. They can have everything. And I keep saying, I trust you. I trust you. And I go, oh, no, don't say that you trust me because I've got to be careful how I spend my money. What is the right way when it comes to giving your children what they want? Where do you say no? Where do you say yes? Where spoiledness comes in? I'm honestly confused. Yeah, it's not easy, uh, you know, when we have wealth and we want to share it with our children and then our children don't value it as much. I think just constantly letting them know that, you know, there's a price for this, nothing comes for free and being humble in your own life when they see you not be attached to fancy things and you dress simply, you know, you can go in a simple car. You know, it's really about how you model it as well. It's okay so to have simple things. Simple car. I've got to sell it's, my cars. It's not okay. What? So I have to sell my cars. <laughs> yeah, if you have a lot of cars, then you're, you're showing the children that this is so important, right? Or if, if you're a woman and a mother and you're like all decked up in your Chanel bags and you're... I don't even know what the fancy labels are, but your Dior this, and then your children will begin to think that that matters. So as much as possible to show them that none of this matters, this is all an illusion. Don't be attached to this shit. It can come and go. If you have an attitude about that, then that's what they will incorporate as well. Yeah, I, I, I have the nice cars and the, I don't even drive them. And I say to them, you know, this is reassuring dad that he's done good. I work hard for this. Not long ago, I couldn't, I, my diet was two coffees and a sugar donut a day. Now we got this. I'm, this humbles me, reminds me of anything's possible. Then I'm wondering if it's just all talk. But somehow along the way, they're not that spoiled. You know, and I think, like you said, share with them that you are humble. Uh, at the same time, yes. abundance is for all. So doctor, with two minutes to go, and I want to do this again with you if that's possible. I'd love to see you again. I've got so many questions to ask you. Um, people want to reach out to you. How can they do that, doctor? Because I just think this has been fascinating. And I know our viewers want to reach out to you. How do they do that, please? Well, they can go to my website, drshefali.com, and look up my institute there. Uh, I have lots of courses, so many courses on parenting, relationships, healthy eating, um, and also on my Instagram page, uh, Dr. Shefali. It's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, Shefali. But they can find me uh, on Instagram and I'm we, always we putting put up the free text. content there. We will put the text underneath. Um, when are you coming back to Dubai? 
Oh, I hope so soon. I, I come every few months to do a talk with the YPO or with Mind Valley or something or the other brings me to your part of the world. So I'll look you up the next time I'm there. You are invited. You're going to come to our office. I can even organize events with you. I would be honored to okay, have you Okay, awesome. Let's, I'd love that. I'd love I'll that. I'll be absolutely honored, Doctor. And I know you're busy. You're in Atlanta and you've got podcasts after interviews yes. and so forth. Thank you so much. My love and regards to your Thank daughter, Thank you so please. much. Thank Namaste, you so much. Namaste, Doctor. Bye. Thank you. I salute you, Doctor. Thank you. See you again. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Bye.